Welcome to Untangling Christianity. On this show, John and Greg attempt to diffuse destructive ideologies, unsnarl confused ideas, consider love and truth in Christianity. I'm John Polstra. And I'm Greg Monteith. Today, we're going to talk about we do not know what. I got a couple things bouncing around. I'm also curious about your class coming up at church. Right. Um, before we get to that, I think a couple times ago we were talking about Job and versions of the Bible and your, I, you know, I made a little discovery here. I thought I'd share with the listeners if they're into tech at all, like I am. You nice. were mentioning the RSV version of the Bible. You were also mentioning your suggestion of, or your recommendation of getting a Bible with no commentary, good footnotes, but really no, not even chapter headings, I think. You, you know, we're just saying this. I think you called it a stripped down yeah. version. Well, yeah. somehow. N- NRSV, but yeah. Or I'm sorry, I keep saying RSV, NRSV. Well, somehow I was talking to my dad or something. He likes the ESV. Mm-hmm. And anyway, one thing led to another. I was talking, doing a search on the Google, and I found out that there was an ESV standalone application for iPad. Cool. And I have an iPad, and I have there's a there's the Bible application which I've been using, but I don't like it because although it has like a thousand different translations of the Bible, including like probably the four or five most popular ones, including the Message, mm-hmm. I hate the scrolling. The scrolling is all confused. You, you know, usually with Kindle or some of these, you either just continually scroll up and down or you scroll back and forth. And this one is you scroll down and then you have to click to change chapters and it drives me crazy. Anyway, there's a standalone application for the ESV version of the Bible called, I think it's like ESV Bible or something like that. And it just scrolls infinitely. It also comes with some reading plans, including the chronological one that I was doing. All right. So... I've been using that. The only downside of that thing, though, is that it starts on whatever day, like day it actually is. So if it's July, whatever, it starts on July, even if you haven't done any of it. So I'm constantly scrolling back to January, and I don't know. I also found this other thing on the internet that lays out the different references for reading the Bible chronologically in a year. So mm-hmm. I may just print that thing off and. Mm-hmm. do a little uh, combination of the old way of doing things and the new way. So anyway, that was kind of a, a nice find. So I'm continuing to read through Job and I don't know, touching on kind of what we were talking about last time with Job. It's interesting that, you know, the his friends that his quote friends that come to talk to him. I can't remember because it's been a few weeks since I had this idea since we last talked about it. but it was this idea that I can't remember if it was his friends or if or if Job is saying you know why is God no maybe I think it's his friends it's like why is God doing this to you right and you and I had talked about the distinction between God doing something versus God allowing yeah and I thought that was an interesting nuance I, I don't know that I have anywhere to go with that but that was <laughs> that was kind of the extent of of my thoughts on that topic well, it's interesting, you know, because God doesn't need to kowtow to anybody. I mean, not just kind of thinking about God as some sort of ideal entity, but thinking about the God of the the Hebrew Bible does not kowtow, does not, you know, it's not it's not subservient to to anyone or anything. So, but why comment, is that surprising? 
Pardon me? Why is that surprising? I mean... Well, it's it's not. It's just this idea then that I think we would need to really take seriously those uh, two interactions with, you know, the, the accuser or the entity called Satan, um, where God says, okay, you know, this, this entity says to God, you do this. And, and you'll see that Job is not, you know, quite the guy you made him out to be. And God's, you know, in the text, it's God replying back to, to Satan saying, well, you do this, only don't go, only go this far and no further. You know, so there's no need on any standard, according to any rules or understandings of who God is, anything laid out in the scriptural text or uh, anywhere, that would say that God needs to interact with this, this entity in this way. Um, so the fact that God does is obviously it's, it's some sort of like, you know, it's passing things back over to this entity called Satan. And then you've got, I mean, I hadn't read further in the book of Job for a while. And so as you're saying, you know, that God has, uh, the notion that God has done this to you there, there is an idiom. There's a, there's a kind of a, a, a Hebrew, uh, idiom or way of seeing things like, um, um, uh, I remember it expressed one way where, you know, if you're up on the second floor balcony and you jump off, that, that in, in Hebrew terms, it would be, look at look what God has done to you. Or look, look what God has caused, caused to befall you. Which is sort of saying, you know, it's a very uh, abstract, I guess, idea of God acting. In other words, God has set up this world and, and you've reaped the consequences of the way the world is set up by your actions. So maybe that's another piece to think about when we're thinking about, um, you know, the reaction, let's say, of, of Job's three friends and then the, the, the fellow that comes along a little bit after that who joins those three friends. Um, so maybe, yeah, I would think there's, there, there's, there's some questions there about these kind of idiomatic expressions or maybe these kind of traditional ways of viewing God's action in the world, you know, which is not maybe a direct action. And as we saw at the beginning of Job, obviously God's not acting so much as allowing. And yet also you have the friends saying, well, God's done this. Right. So it gets a little confusing. I think it's one of those things that, you know, here again, it just, like as a, as a, as a reader reading this and you're here, you've got two different versions of who's doing the dirty work. Oh, I like Shh. that. I like that. You, 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 this is a this is a clear signal to any reader who really wants to understand what's going on to say, "Hey, I I I need some help with this." Right? And so um like there's a contradiction right here in this text apparently. Now, I don't think there is any contradiction because I think again we're dealing with a kind of a if not an idiomatic expression, then kind of a cultural um, understanding of action in the world as always being undergirded by God's original action of creation, of making the world as it is, uh, you know, something like that. But again, if we don't, you know, if we don't recognize that there's a problem as a reader, then we're not going to turn to other sources. And, you know, we might turn to sources that aren't so good. You know, they're not quite as, um, well thought through, well researched as other sources and whatever. But my hunch is most Christians, most of the time reading this, don't even see the contradictions. And that for me is the biggest red flag of this whole, you know, the whole notion 
Um, you know, maybe not the, maybe the notion of God actually causing evil is a pretty big red flag, but right up there along with it is this idea that so many Christians, I think, would typically read these, um, this book and these chapters, not see the contradiction that's laid out right there and, and just kind of make assumptions. And that's really, uh, I, I think that's, that's, it's very dangerous, but I think that's part of what part of a larger problem with evangelical Christians and Bible reading, you know, that we see. Yeah, I think we've, uh, we haven't touched on that topic for a while. Maybe that's Maybe that's one of our top four topics. That <laughs> <laughs> Did you want to go further with that one or what were you thinking about that? I don't have any more thoughts unless you do, or if you have any questions or thoughts for me. I think I'd want to tuck in. I don't have a commentary on Job. I mean, uh, now you're going to go buy one. <laughs> Well, you know, <laughs> I actually just completed my, my commentary series of the New Testament. So, yeah, if I come into any money sometime soon, I, I'll put it towards <laughs> buying some of those. So what's going on at your church? You did your initial presentation. Have you had any more discussion groups or presentations or what's going on there? Okay, well, I, I did my pitch. So I, I put out my pitch about you know, um, a five-minute spiel about what we're going to be doing. And essentially, we're going to be setting up, really setting up a discussion group first, which sounds sort of silly. Well, just arrange the location and the date and see who comes, right? But what I'm interested in is creating an environment based on, you know, you can, I'd love your feedback from our time at Labrie, but an environment that's a safe place, a productive place, where people understand sort of, you know, they have a sense of what their goals are. They have ex- maybe having have a sense of what constitutes success for them. And that's the first little bit of this first, you know, dis- this first discussion group, which is actually starting the first um, meeting will be on uh, this Sunday. And um, so I got a question already. How are you defining safety? I'm going to let them do it. Oh, nice. You're going to have the group essentially set the ground rules for the group. Yeah, you know, and if they have a disagreement, then I'm happy to come in and kind of mediate, you know, and I don't know, like, I don't know these people well enough to know that maybe there's a powder keg in the room, right? There's, <laughs> these two people are sitting across the room from each other don't get along, and they've got a history. And maybe one of them will say, well, I need somebody who's going to not act or say this, blah, 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 blah. And the other person across the room might say, well, I need somebody who's not going to try to constrain me about this or that when I try to express my opinions. So, you know, we'll have to work through that. But I'd much rather have all that on the table and say, okay, so it looks like you've all put out your thoughts. I see some, you know, so there's some contradictions here. Uh, some, some, some of you are looking for something that, that, you know, is mutually exclusive with what others are looking for. How do you want to deal with that? And th- keep throwing it back to them. So that's the the safety piece. And I guess the, the comfort piece is I want people to feel comfortable enough to be willing to express their opinions and or be willing to express that they don't have an opinion. They don't feel like they're knowledgeable on this topic. And, um, you know, and maybe just say, how do you feel about, express how they feel about that. Maybe they feel very uncomfortable about the fact that they don't know very much and they feel daunted. Or maybe they feel, I don't know, like, uh, 
yeah, like what they have to say is really important and they, they're, they're, you know, really, um, eager to get their viewpoint out. I I don't know. So what will you be discussing? Well, once we sort of set some ground rules about, you know, what does safety look like? And we kind of come to some agreements about that safety and, you know, comfortable environment. I think I also want to talk about, um, goals and about success criteria. You know, I want them, whether they share their goals with me or not, or their success criteria with me, I'm going to share mine with them. Um, Which is what? Well, my, this is really interesting. You know, I had no idea when I, I just, I just tried to lay them out and not think about them in relation to each other. But my success criteria are very low and my goals are rather high. What's the difference? Well, the success criteria is, what am I going to come away with saying to myself, you know what, we have succeeded. This, in my view, has been, has been valuable, has been, has been something that I think has, has, I guess, met my needs, maybe. And so my goal is that after the first time, two people, in addition to my spouse, Susan, who is going to be coming anyways, and the pastor who said, yeah, he'll be there, two other people show up. If I get that, then I'm happy. So I guess success for me is what am I happy with? If two people come back after the first week. Yeah. Or the second week. Yeah, which is super low. I mean, it's... it's, 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 How many people came the first time? Well, this this will be the first time. No, but didn't you do something else? Mm, I did a a pitch. I did a pitch in church and just kind of stood up and gave them five minutes and... and, uh, um, really kind of presented the, on the, the focus of the group, which is the, the idea of understanding and questioning our assumptions, our assumptions about God and then our assumptions about ourselves and about the relationship between the two. And so in keeping with that kind of that focus for the group, my goals are to get people to the point where they can think about and be willing to investigate this whole idea of, if you like, adjudication. So that they're, on the one hand, they're willing to analyze something, like a problem or a question. And then on the other hand, they're willing to do some of the work that's required to become more skilled in adjudicating when their ability to analyze something ends. And they would have to then, in other words, they might adjudicate an expert opinion. For example, on the book of Job, right? So I'd like them to, a goal is, can you analyze Job enough to see that there are some contradictions here? That's one goal. And the second goal is, okay, now that you've done that, um, what, can you, uh, what can you do or what can you see in terms of, um, well, you've got maybe three or four other opinions from people who are, writing commentaries on Job. How do you weigh this up and how do you kind of work your way through it? That's intriguing. So you're you're wanting people to read the Bible or some something. Is it the around the Bible? But you want them to be reading to the depth of almost taking a cynical or suspicious perspective to it to where they get to the point where like, well this does not equal this or or this is not internally consistent with itself. Well, yeah. I mean, I think I think one of the things that I would hope to cultivate, well, uh, cultivate this idea that we're not looking, 
when we're talking about truth, we're not looking for propositional truth. Which is what? Oh, the idea that, like, I don't know, God is infinite. God is all-loving. God is all-knowing. God is all, you know, um, all good. Uh, I, I think in, in a lot of cases what we're looking for is we're, we're examining the, the tensions that exist and we're seeing that the text is actually presenting that our world, and I might be, you know, talking about two different subjects. On the one hand, there's God, and on the other hand, there's human beings. But certainly when it comes to human beings, we're not looking at, at, at propositional understandings. And I, I, don't, I don't actually buy that idea in terms of the Bible as a whole anyways. The notion about the tensions is that, for example, um, as Christians, we don't want to just believe. I mean, that's credulity. That's just, just taking something on because someone says you should take it on. Well, on what basis are you doing that? Well, you know, we've talked before about the difference between the eminence of a certain person or a source and the weight of the evidence. You know, so someone might might seem like an authority figure to you or might seem very credible, but they may be putting out information on a subject or describing something, explaining something uh, with uh, very little evidence to back up their position. Well, that doesn't cut it for me. And I think I would want to uh, help people to, um, to identify that really what we're looking at is a looking at a tension between believing belief and skepticism. So skepticism is a good thing. We need that. And the same thing with faith. Just having faith in something, just, just holding on to something by faith um, is, is insufficient, right? If, if belief on the basis of just being told something is, is not a good idea, then neither is the idea of um, continuing to act out and to um, um, embody and perpetuate that belief into uh, faith, into a way of being in the world. And I think in terms of that tension, we need to experience or, and, and cultivate a tension between faith and suspicion. So suspicion and skepticism are good things to have. Skepticism looks at facts. Suspicion's looking at people. Skepticism says there's not enough evidence here to believe this. Okay, then don't believe it. Or, you know, stand back a bit and say, I'm not really sure about this. Suspicion says, hey, you got one, this person says they believe this and, and that, that, that they're living like this, but they're not. That's not what's going on here at all. In fact, this whole group of people, these are, these are a bunch of hypocrites. Oh, okay, well, that's something to look at, right? We want to be aware of that. And so, you know, you're, you're taking me a little deeper than I would certainly go with this group right off. But um, I guess that whole piece about, in terms of my goals, one is analysis and the other is adjudication. Well, in the analysis piece, it's saying to them, hey, don't just believe and have faith. Be skeptical, be suspicious, you know, and what does that look like? How do we do that? Um, because those are typically notions that most Christians think are really problematic. Like you shouldn't, you shouldn't be skeptical about, I don't know, what the Bible's telling you. You shouldn't be suspicious about what your, what your minister's motives might be for preaching on a certain subject. And I would say, yeah, I think you should be. But you might also want to be skeptical about your own information. 
and about your own level of training. And you might want to be suspicious about your own intentions. So in other words, we're not just directing skepticism and suspicion outwards. We're directing it inwards as well. What do you think will happen in this first meeting? Like how long will it be? It'll be an hour or so? Or? It's just going to be 45 minutes. I think mostly it's going to be people realizing that like I think we're steering between two different courses and this is what seemed the message I seem to get. On the one hand, people have the sense that we're there to just kind of discuss and there's 10 people in the room and there could be 10 different opinions and, and we'll go through and discuss it. Maybe we might read a verse or two and that'll be that. Well, that's, I don't think that's helpful. might be a good place to start, but it's not, it's not going to do what you want it to do. Hmm. And the other, the other perspective is you're there for me to tell you what's right and what's wrong and what I think, and I'm an expert on all this stuff. And that's not going to help either, even if I am an expert. Because the idea is, you know, we are going through, I guess, almost a course, of, a course in, in training ourselves to assess things and adjudicate between experts so that we can learn ourselves, so that the people who are participating can develop the necessary acumen to be able to approach difficult questions with some sense of confidence, both in terms of their own ability and also a sense of their own limitations. So they know, okay, I'm at the end of my ability here. What are my next steps? Where would I go? Who would I turn to? So in the first meeting, yeah, I think we'll probably just get through What's, what's, what constitutes safe and comfortable? What are your goals? What are your, um, what's your success criteria? And then, you know, what are your expectations? What do you think this group's going to be like? How do you think we're going to go through that process of looking at hard questions? You know, so maybe that's another way of framing, you know, success criteria, but, um, I guess I'd want to challenge the idea either that, yeah, I'm going to go to this group and just express my opinion and hear a bunch of other people express their opinions and that's going to be satisfying, which I don't believe. <laughs> Sounds like a typical <laughs> or the Bible of, study. <laughs> yeah, or the idea of like, oh, Greg's this kind of uh, gem in the rough and he's going to uh, help us understand all this stuff that we didn't understand before and he's just going to teach it all to us and we're going to you know, feel good about that, which... I don't believe either. I'm feeling pretty optimistic about, I guess, just the possibilities because, you know, well, how does this strike you? I almost stop myself there. Like when you think about Libri, when you think about your time at Libri and some of the kind of modes of discussion, some of the constraints, you know, like we had a certain number of meal discussions a week. They were a certain length. You had a certain number of people there. They were a certain age. You know, it's a self-selecting group that goes to Libri. How, what do you think about what I've said? What would you add or take away? Uh, and how does this compare with what you might think about would be a successful discussion based on your Libri experience? Well, the biggest difference I off the top of my head is that Libri never talked about any of these things. <laughs> you, just, you just ended up right in the middle of the fire. <laughs> Which one? Well, you would just you were just in a meal at least I don't know that I was ever no, I was there at the beginning of one term. But 
I mean, you just go to a meal conversation and people just start talking. There's no sense of like, how are we uh, going to make this safe or what will, you know, how are we defining success from this mealtime, you know, this meal discussion? I Right. That never happened, at least not for me. Right. So that part's a little different. Mm-hmm. Uh, it sounds like a great experience. I, I Yeah, I hope it turns out well. I it just, I mean, it, yeah, it's definitely something I would be interested in participating in and just seeing, okay, what, how does this go? And yeah, what, I think it's curious too if, you know, how translatable is this, the experiences and the discussion format that you have in a Libri context, can you translate it out of that context into a more kind of common everyday context? Well, you know, it's interesting. I've had a couple of people approach me and say, why are we doing this at 9.45 in the morning when we only have 45 minutes? Let's do it after church and have a meal. And that way we've got a lot more time. Interesting. Yeah, I know. But it, it also seems like it's like, oh, okay, this is looking more like a Libri meal conversation. So in other words, they're concerned that 45 minutes isn't enough time. Yeah. Which I would tend to agree with. Yeah. This is for the summer, the six, five or six weeks in the summer. And then the autumn sessions in, in the winter, depending upon how far we go, will be an hour long, but that's not much more time. Yeah, it'll be curious to hear see what happens. Like, yeah, do you find that 45 minutes just isn't enough, or can you make some traction or some progress, but then you have to keep picking the same topic up week after week after week? Yeah. Which might not be a bad thing. I, I know. I mean, I find that a lot of our conversations or other things I'm working on, sometimes taking a swing at it and then having a break and then coming back at it again later, there's mm-hmm. something that happens in that time period in between where you have new ideas or you either right. new ideas, new solutions or new ideas of, Oh, I haven't looked over here. I could do this instead or yeah. Mm-hmm. No, that's a really good point. Yeah. I, I, I'm just hoping that the, you know, I would, the, as you would recall, like the biggest, I don't know, number of people at a meal table would have been what, like 15? Yeah, at the most. At the most. So I'm hoping the numbers are, are kind of, you know, more than two and <laughs> um, yeah, less than 15. And I guess it's also, I'm, I'd, I'd, I'm going to be most interested to see, you, you know, once things start flowing what sort of role to take on, you know, in terms of, I think I might even ask people, listen, if you're quiet, if you're not saying anything, how do you feel about me just calling on you and saying, you know, what are you thinking? Will that Mm. help you? You know, what do you need? And maybe just asking people, what do you need? What do you need in order to participate well in this group? Do you need to be left alone? Or do you need to be, do you need to be called on once in a while? You know, are you okay if I throw you the ball? You okay putting it back in the middle saying, you know, I'm not ready to catch the ball right now. And I'll put that question off and somebody else can answer it. So, you know, because I guess I want to create a, I'd like to hear as much as possible from everybody. And also to be able to, on the one hand, keep the discussion alive. And yet on the other hand, not turn it into you know, 15 people came and 15 people expressed their opinions and then we went home. Yeah, that's a that's a tricky one because when I facilitate meetings at work, I mean, that is one of my techniques is I call people out. 
Now, mm-hmm. I hate being called out myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, depending on what it is. Depending... Well, Give definitely in school, I did not like being called out. In a work context, depending on what it is. But usually, usually when I'm calling someone out, it's not calling them out to embarrass them. Mm-hmm. It's we're discussing a contentious issue. We've got three or four different viewpoints. And maybe there's one person that doesn't have a lot to say, but when they do, it's really, really good. Mm-hmm. And then I'm wanting to kind of, you know, hey, Susie, we haven't heard from you on what you're thinking about this. You know, how are you feeling about this decision? Do you think this is a good idea, a bad idea? We should consider mm-hmm. something else. Where are you at? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, helping give that person some some room to speak and to give their opinion. Yeah. So, and I guess you could do it kind of in the same way here, too. Although, yeah, in school, I always hated it, particularly if I had no idea what was going on or what, what I thought. or And then it was just kind of embarrassing that I didn't have anything. Yeah. And, you know, maybe that's not the direction I want to go. Maybe, you know, I'm asking them to put their cards on the table and maybe I need to put my cards on the table a little bit first. Like, I guess I'm thinking about uh, a family mediation is always structured where not only do I meet individually with, you know, the two parents, um, but when we first meet together, there's an introductory sort of spiel, sort of information, ground setting, rule setting, if you like, and, and, and such that I, I would give. And maybe I need to just put my cards really on the table and say, you know, I'm interested in what you all have to think, you know, what you all think about this, what you all have to say about this. I'm also interested in steering you in two directions. So know that I'm going to do that. I'm going to steer you towards what's the process of assessing this? And then once you reach the end of your skill set at assessing, what's the process of adjudicating between the assessments of those who are deemed experts in these areas? And letting them just, yeah, you know, maybe that's part of what I need to do. It's, it's interesting discussing this because, I, I, like you say, it is a, it's a tricky thing. Well, and on one hand, it seems so obvious. It's like, well, it's obvious when you get to the end of what you know. Then you ask for help, or then you say, I don't know. But I think what I hear you saying is, well, sometimes it's not that clear. Well, I guess in a Christian context, there might be, like if we go back to Job, right? Did you even notice that the entity called Satan said to God, God, you do this? Now, why do you keep calling it the entity? (laughs) Well, (laughs) (laughs) someone's surely going to call us out on that. (laughs) I know, I know. Well, it's the same thing with God, right? I don't call, I don't, and Amy noted this, I don't refer to God as he. I just think that's, that's, God is more than male. He's, God is at least male and at least female and more than that, right? And so if I refer to God, I wouldn't say himself or he, I would say God and God's self. And with Satan, I guess I'm kind of sensitive to the fact that for many people who are not Christian, the idea of this kind of um, adversarial situation in the spiritual realm is um, one step away from uh, just completely laughable or ridiculous or, you know, whatever. But the concept of God isn't? Um, God is a little easier to digest then i think so i think so because i think i mean at our at this cultural moment as far as i can see the idea of uh you know god in terms of uh an entity who is loving 
or who is um, caring. These are, these are big notions. These are important notions. So, you know, you get somebody like Greta Vosper in her, her book called With, um, With or Without God, and, and her view as a, um, as a liberal Christian, and from what I've read of it and having heard her speak once, is, you know, it's not really important whether God exists. What's important is love and some of these other things that we get from and take from the Christian tradition. And um, so I think, yeah, in some senses, that's a really big, uh, that's an acceptable, much more acceptable approach to Christianity, i.e. seeing God as love, and that we need love, and that we can all relate to that. Whereas this idea of, you know, Satan or whatever, like, I think, I think I would also just default to a title like the adversary. Okay, where were you going with that? Well, you're right to call me out on it. I, I'm sure I'll have to say a little more, but um, well, no, just that even at the beginning of Job, right? I mean, you're saying it should be obvious that Christians, when they get to the end of their ability, should ask for help. Well, I don't even think that most times people are recognizing this, the, that there's an issue in front of them. So if you're reading Job and you're not seeing that there's this back and forth between here, God, do this, and you'll see that I, that I am right, says Satan, if you like. And then God says back to Satan, no, no, you, you do this, but don't, don't harm him physically, right? And then there's another exchange like that. And then you've got these friends or whomever of Job's who come, sit, and say nothing for seven days, and then begin to speak to Job. And as you said, you know, say, you know, God has done this to you for a reason. And so my hunch is most Christians don't read that, those introductory chapters of Job and notice the contradiction. So they didn't even know they need help. Well, or they would, but, hmm. but I think a lot of people would, they wouldn't even realize there was a contradiction because of their baseline assumptions. Yeah. And now we're into, now we're into God's sovereignty and all that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you can see too. <laughs> In other words, God's God, so God can do whatever He pleases. So the exactly. fact that He's the fact that He, you know, sends horrible stuff into our lives to make us better people. I mean, well, He's just God; He can do whatever He wants. Yeah. Well, I'm saying yes, as in I agree that that's a prevalent idea, not that I agree that that's true. Yes, and I'm being sarcastic, just to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> but. I guess this is that's 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 just the point, and, and in some senses, this is if you like theology, overstepping its limits, and and then therefore unduly impacting, incorrectly impacting exegesis. So your exegesis, when you read through this and you say what is going on in this text, as a reader, you should note the contradiction, and if you don't note that that contradiction because you have certain understandings of who God is that are that are over overruling your 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 I don't know your ability to notice that then this is a this is an indication that something to do with your theology or how you're holding it is incorrect whether the theology is incorrect or whether how you're holding it is incorrect but theology cannot overstretch exegesis and also exegesis is informed by theology I don't come to this the book of Job or any other book without assumptions, but those assumptions have to be held in such a way that I can assess them. When they are beyond my ability to assess, then I, I am at the mercy of whatever my assumptions are, right? If I can't 
say, hey, well, gee, that's funny. I didn't notice that the first time I read that. I wonder why. And then you might dig deeper or ask yourself, well, why was that? And you might say, well, because God can do anything, right? Hmm. Then why would God, you know, put it back to, 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 to Satan like this? Oh, okay. I might have to dig in a little deeper here. So yeah, I guess, you know, the group is, is a lot about questioning those assumptions. And I'm sure that we are, maybe that's a good place to start. Maybe your uh, book of Job uh, situation might be an interesting <laughs> exercise. Oh, in terms of material use. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't really mind what people, mm-hmm. I would just wonder, are, are you going to notice this? Do you notice that there's a, there's a contradiction here? And, and then what are you going to... But there's a you... contradiction based on your baseline assumptions, though. If you don't have that baseline assumption, then there's no contradiction. Well, there's a contradiction with the three friends later. Remind me what that is. Well, that's when you mentioned that they say, you know, look what God has done to you. God has done this for a reason. You are guilty of this or this or this or this or this. You know, there's never, and that's an interesting, uh, I would like to reread Job and, and, and wonder, but I don't think that there's any reference to any of the friends or anyone saying, you know, this is as a result of Satan. This is No, a, I don't think Job ever knows why. No. And he seems to be at peace with that. He makes peace with it too. At the end, I think. At the end. Well, yeah, and that's that's another that's another very interesting um um situation, you know, was one uh one of my favorite uh responses or evaluations of Job talks about, you know, God doesn't speak of Job. God speaks to Job. And that's sufficient. And I think that's 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 a hundred percent right, because I don't I don't need to know why necessarily. You know, I don't have to have I don't have to have a sense of justice about it. I but it's so to. easy to get stuck there. Oh yeah. It's so easy. <laughs> In fact, uh Tommy, my wife, we often can get tripped up there with, you know, why why did you do this? To me or speak to me this way or why did this happen mm-hmm. and sometimes we'll catch ourselves and we'll say you know what it's already broken or it's already happened so mm-hmm. why how useful is why now mm, exactly. <laughs> maybe if we want to if we're really focused intently on how can we avoid this in the future probably a good question if it's mm-hmm. whose fault is this? <laughs> yeah. That never turns out very well. And yeah, and I don't know, it is just interesting. Yeah, I think why can be a, become a, de- a detour or distraction from getting at the heart of what's really going on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And I and I guess for me too as I think about the end of Job and with my own situation, you know, I don't know why my my father, you know, uh, I've I've got ideas. You know, I think uh, why my father was sexually abusive to me, and I think you know um, some of the explanations are this was something that was ongoing through my father's family, something he grew up with, something he suffered, something that he internalized, and then you know it doesn't mean he's a victim, and doesn't mean he's he makes no choices. You know, it's like it's, it's like that old. We should this would be a great podcast subject, but. What did you say once about driving? You said, uh, I think it was, you were uh, making the assumption that someone's doing the best they can. And I remember... <laughs> you, you didn't like that. 
<laughs> well, you know, I thought about my dad and I thought, you know, don't get me wrong. Like, uh, you know, the many things I love about and I do indeed love my father generally, but my father wasn't doing the best he could when he had sex with me. Like, that's just if you're if you're if you're thinking that route, that that if that's your orientation towards whatever may come about in your life, I think you're just um, you're not even courting with falsehood. You're just embracing falsehood. And that's not a life I want to live. So no, no, he, he, he patently did not do his best at certain points. Um, you know, but, but that said, um, I guess for me, as I think about the end of the end of Job, um, I don't have that explanation. I don't have, I certainly don't have anything back from my father saying, gee, I'm sorry that this happened. But part of the, I guess the power and the impact of some of my experiences of God are that there, there's something in the presence of that encounter, something in the weight and the density of it that I would say is very similar to this idea of it's not that God responds to our situation, but responds to us. And I think this is, I know I'm taking us in a totally different direction. (laughs) (laughs) No, I like, well, yeah, I, well, I still want to go back to this doing the best. I don't like, I don't like using the example of your father though, because I feel like it's, it's very loaded. Well, you could, you could take a different stance. Like you're not going to offend me. No, no, no. I'm just, I'm afraid of like discounting someone else or there's, I, (laughs) Well, yeah, I'll have to think about that one. Come more, come back to it again. But this right. does this does tie into something recently that I read. I I feel like it does. You were talking about you know the reason, and I was reading. I mentioned, I think it was in the last episode. I mentioned Chris Gillibo and that he does this event every year in Portland called the World Domination Summit. Right. He wrote something that just really smack me upside the head. His brother recently passed away. His brother mm. was only 31. And he he wrote this at the end of the post. He said, for now, there's not much I can say about this situation that's hopeful or inspiring. I don't believe it happened for a reason. I don't believe anything good will come of it. And all I can think is, I would give anything to bring him back. Hmm. Hmm. And I don't know, I just... I like the realness of that, that, you know, mm-hmm. he's not, he is, he's exactly where he's at. Yeah. Yeah. It, it made me, I think it also made me think of you a little bit too. It's like you're, I don't know, it just seemed to, I don't know, it resonated there for a few different reasons. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think we, we talked about this in a past podcast as well, where, you know, the idea at the beginning of uh, Tolkien's Silmarillion and one of the archangels messes up the great orchestra that creates all things. And one of his fellow archangels complains and says, you know, look at this. That's, he's, he's created cold, piercing cold, deadly cold. It's killing off all these things or will, will it will once it starts its course. And then the divine being says, well, yeah, but I mean, look at the grace and beauty of ice and look at the the complexity and variety of snowflakes and 
you know, again, not that these are better possibilities, but they are new possibilities, you know, and I certainly see my own situation like that. I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not glad for it. I don't think it's a better course of action. Can, can good come of it? Well, new possibilities come from this. And out of those possibilities, I have the choice to do good or not. Do I attribute them directly to those, you know, to being abused as a child? No, I don't see that as a, as a necessary link. You know, it could have been a whole number of things. Although there is a certain reality that we do not escape tension and pressure and adversity. Like we, we suffer adversity. I've just tried to put together a treehouse and I've had setback after setback after setback. <laughs> my, you know, this has been my major vacation. And as a vacation, I guess if I was to gauge it by the success criteria of getting the treehouse up, it's been a crappy vacation. But oh well, you know, that's kind of like, at a certain point, I just started to laugh. Because <laughs> sometimes things go that way, you know, I can't, I can't control it. And um, I know that it's, that's not the way to, it's not comforting. It's not a comforting idea. You know, when we're thinking about somebody dying or somebody doing something atrocious or awful, I guess I still believe, though, that when I suffer things, and I don't just mean like my body hurts or my mind hurts, but when something imposes itself on me, like life, and it's bigger than me, like my tree fort setbacks, I have choices. New choices are opened up. And always in the context of these new choices, I have the possibility of interpreting and kind of using my vision to pick out i don't mean just vision in the with my eyes but in terms of my goals and my orientation having a new way forward having a new response to a situation being creative and i guess putting together some of these virtues that i think are 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 just crucial to human existence you know i would see that each one of these situations offers new possibilities for love and truth, truth and love to, to be creatively expressed and implemented. Nice way to sneak that in at the end. <laughs> I didn't see it coming. <laughs> no, and I would, I, and my closing thoughts would be, I really like this idea of choices mm-hmm. because it, it makes a big distinction between being a victim. Mm-hmm. If you're choosing, you have some type of, and there's this idea you know around our feelings you know that that you know our feelings are not wrong they just happen to us but mm. the, the real crux of it is how do we respond mm-hmm. so i i kind of see that in the same way Res- how we respond how we choose what we choose we do have some control over that yeah yeah and also maybe how we see things you know sometimes i feel terribly about a situation and it's not until I dig into it and start asking why or what's going on that I realize, oh, it's not that I'm angry at this person. It's that I, I feel like I haven't done, I haven't met my obligations. I feel like I've let somebody down. And that changes, you know, it's the same feeling, but now I've got the clarity on, okay, here's where it's coming from. And so there's that, I guess that, that I would want to both, yeah, emphasize the choices and also a clarity about, you know, what what is happening? What is the situation? What are the... 
the prompters that have created this, these feelings or the kind of state of affairs. Thanks for listening to the Untangling Christianity podcast. Notes and links for this episode are at untanglingchristianity.com. We welcome your thoughts and comments both at the website and our private Facebook group. If you'd like to join the private Facebook group, let us know your email address in the sidebar of the website to receive notes and links for each episode, and we'll send you an invite to our private group. Or you can send your thoughts or request to join the group by email. Send those emails to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com. Music on this podcast is made possible by Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com and is licensed under a Creative Commons license. Tune in next week for a new episode.